Welcome to Webinaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Webinaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webinaki perspectives on topics of interest. Webinaki Windows is being brought to you by WERU in East Orland, Maine, in partnership with WMPG Portland, Maine. Today is the sixth show in part two of our series on unpacking sovereignty. Our guests today are Professors Harold Prince and Professor Dan Ranko. Uh, professor Prince is a native of the Netherlands. He is a distinguished professor of anthropology and an emeritus at Kansas State. Professor Darren Ranko uh, is a member of the Penobscot Nation and an associate professor of anthropology and chair of Native American Studies at the University of Maine. November, next, next month, November, will be our seventh and last show of this series. On this show, we will review the highlights of our past sovereignty series and discuss what each of us found most interesting and or most important. So uh, thank you, Darren and, and Harold for, uh, for joining me on this. And um, if there's, let's just talk about what struck us in this, this, these past series. Um, who wants to go first? Want me to pick? Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> you can okay. pick Donna. Oh, Darren, you're always talking. Uh, all right. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. Yeah. I'm happy to, to go first. And um, I uh, really, <clears throat> as always, a pleasure to be joining you two to discuss this. And I've, you know, I've learned uh, so much in our conversations these last, I don't know how long. It's been over a year, right, Donna? Like, um, you know, I think the, um, for me, the formulation around, um, you know, I, I made a big deal out of this early on the, in the, in the state constitution, the recognition of a certain class of individual, um, referred to there as, uh, Indians not taxed and sort of, you know, really ruminating on that as both, um, something that defined our, the possibility or the recognition of us as separate and sovereign uh, peoples uh, with our own separate um, polity, our own separate um, system. Um, and then realizing how quickly that uh, turned into a racialized and colonial, colonial um, uh, framework of otherness to do, um, quite horrible things, uh, and most of them legal, uh, uh, to the extent we can say that the, 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 you know, uh, the treaties which were found illegal <laughs> were also uh, considered legal, uh, uh, at some point. And then, um, just this real strong investments, uh, around control often, often with the, um, you know, in the 19th century, this this strong investment towards control, which first led to expropriation of lands and claiming of our lands, then extraction, various forms of extraction to, to garner wealth in our lands. And then lastly, to kind of, you know, um, in the starting in the, the 20th century, I guess you'd say that even in the end of the 19th century, um, starting to just 
erase us altogether um, in, in real deliberative fashion. But to make those connections as um, the report, you know, One Nation Under, under Fraud um, points out, but also as we've discussed um, off and on for the last year or more, um, how particular individuals who are who are connected to the decision making to take our lands and, and resources um, personally benefited from those decisions. Um, hence the fraud element of it. And uh, just sort of thinking about the, you know, the space of 1820, the founding of the state of Maine, um, that the founding fathers were much like other founding fathers in other contexts were basically land speculators um, interested in in profiteering off of indigenous people's lands and sort of how that structure gets maintained <clears throat> for the next 200 years um, through various um, uh, frauds and various sort of uh, inner dealings when, and then uh, as we've talked about it in the recent times uh that that five-year period between um 1975 um with the Passamaquoddy v morton decision and the then in 1980 the main indian claims settlement act passed and the main in implementing act uh, passed um sort of that five-year window almost being this like one space and time where we're sort of somewhat free of state control um, and that's being this sort of remarkable period um, and possibility, and with the way that the Settlement Act was written and and uh, interpreted, sort of how that is foreclosed and uh, into the situation that we deal with today in terms of being um, this vested interest of control over tribal peoples by the state of Maine. Harold. Um, yeah, the, uh, yeah, Darren, I uh, agree with much of what you were saying. Um, my take on the um, past year or so of discussion about sovereignty uh, is that um, awareness that the past is a prologue, not only to the present, but also to the future. Um, and with that prologue as a foreword, um, you start saying, okay, where are we now? And that's very difficult to assess in any kind of uh, objective manner with a fully, a full uh, understanding of the complexities that the tribes are facing right now in terms of formulating what is it exactly that they lost, what is it exactly that they have, and what is it exactly that they want? Um, and all relevant to the concept of sovereignty understood as basically the right to self-government and the um, right to self-determination in terms of the resources that a uh, state, for example, or a tribe possesses. Uh, in this case, um, whatever the, uh, the, the products of the forest, uh, the mountains uh, and the rivers, um, what are these resources and who gets to determine um, uh, what to do with them, uh, whether to develop them, whether to leave them in a state of nature, whatever it may be, that's the right of self-determination. And the right to self-government is in essence, the idea of course, that you don't have an overarching, overseeing eye over the community that has self-government. And so in this case, 
the um, the burden of the state that rests on the shoulders of the uh, tribes in Maine, whereby the state of Maine somehow has come to believe through its officials that that is normal, uh, that that is somehow uh, because it was so in, let's say, 20 years ago, 100 years ago, therefore it always was, A, and therefore it always will be. And in reality, of course, um, let's come back to the idea of um, the past is a prologue, is that history is made by humans. And that means in this case, not just uh, white Mainers in Augusta, um, but uh, a strong say is claimed by the indigenous peoples whose fate hangs in the balance. And that voice of indigenous peoples in self-determination and the maintenance or rec reclamation of self-government, that voice is increasingly heard thanks to um, uh, Donna's um, work in the legislature, but also through hosting this show, for example, and through uh, Darren's work as chair of the Native Studies program at the University of Maine in Orono. So the capacity of talking back and entering into a discourse about not only what is happening in the past, what happened in the past, but also what will be happening, that requires um, a kind of a vision uh, about the future that I think, and I hope, that the tribal um, communities will engage in, in terms of thinking about where do they want to be a generation from now? It will not happen next year. It will not happen even in 10 years, but maybe in 25 or 30 years, you may have a very different uh, configuration of, um, of political forces in the state, but also in the federal government. Um, and so I think the, um, the challenge and the opportunity exists right now through people like you and and, and Darren and so many other uh, highly educated uh, Wabanaki people uh, and their supporters uh, who are non-Wabanaki but are sympathetic to the Wabanaki cause is um, to think about what is that future status of a one tribal nation, the Penobscot, but also in conjunction with the other tribal nations uh, of the Wabanaki Confederacy, in this case, the Passamaquoddy, Maliseet, and Mi'kmaq. Um, that's the old confederacy that has existed for hundreds of years. And collectively, uh, each of the tribes um, is together, standing hand in hand with the other tribes, is much stronger as a political force than um, single. In other words, some sort of confederacy idea that the state of Maine, since the 1850s in particular, has tried to rupture, to break up, by um, separating the Mi'kmaq and Maliseet on the other side of the medicine line, the, the Canadian border, the U.S.-Canadian border, to basically say, uh, we don't give you, give you funding to go to these intertribal meetings, um, although um, uh, these intertribal meetings had been existing for many, many generations by that time, basically cutting off, choking off the funding for uh, the chiefs, uh, including um, Donna's forefather, um, Lieutenant Governor John Neptune, who wanted to go not only to the meetings in, um, in the St. John Valley, but also to Kanawage, where many of the other um, allied tribes were convening um, since uh, about 1700. So the value of the history, coming back to that idea of the history, 
is that it gives us an idea not only of what was, but also how it came to erode the, the, in terms of sovereignty, the, the erosion of sovereignty, and therefore envisioning a reconstitution of that sovereignty in a way that is not a replication of the past, because the past is different, but um, informed by the past. So that's kind of what I am taking away from uh, the monthly discussions we've had about sovereignty when you go beyond the minute details about which legislature said what, when, where, but what's the overall, overall uh, importance of the whole uh, process. Okay, so, you know, what I've taken out of this is I think that, you know, tribe, members of the tribe who are not, uh, who don't go to college or uh, who haven't researched history or learned in school about their history. I think that um, what we're learning right now and what we're talking about is important for them to know and to learn. Uh, you know, we're starting to really uncover to sort of bring that dark sort of fraudulent history stuff into light. And as Harold says, and uh, you know, it's, we've got to understand what happened in order to visualize what can happen uh, and what we need to do to correct it. And I think a lot of the stuff that we talked about uh, sort of throws the light onto those sorts of things. It's like, you know, when we, one of the things that was important to me to, to know, I guess, which I didn't, I didn't even, I didn't think was important till I heard it, had to do with uh, George Washington. And you think, George Washington, uh, you don't put Indians, really, you don't think he had that much interaction with Indians. Uh, but those first sections we had with Colin made it clear that land was very important to George Washington. And land was power, land was wealth. And this country was, is built on native land, the taking of native land. And you know what, what Colin said about Washington, when he looked east, he looked at the past. And when he looked west, he looked at the future reference to land. Because when he looked east, he figured, oh, that's all done. That's been, that, those lands are already taken over. But the west, there's so many, so much more land out there and so much more for, uh, for us to do to create states. Uh, so that sort of laid the foundation for me and for my thoughts moving forward uh, on this. And then also what we talked about with, uh, with treaties, uh, 1718, uh, I'm sorry, um, 17, what we call 1790 uh, Non-Intercourse Act, how that affected the, uh, the 1880, 1819, 1820 treaties. Uh, so there's a lot there to, to, to think about and to, and to digest. Um, and when you think about that, what really surprised me, you know, I always thought, um, the 
the state agreed to take on native Penobscot uh, um, duties, I guess, from Massachusetts before before they could become a state. That was the that was the agreement, and I always thought that okay, so that was an agreement that was made, and that uh, it went to Congress, and everything was approved, and and I didn't realize till we really looked close that the Treaty of eighteen twenty with the Penobscot was not signed until after Maine had become a state. That makes a difference. Anything yeah. else? Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I think, um, I just wanna just, uh, I, I guess I wanna highlight also this, you know, if you think about the, the back and forth on the four townships of the 1820 um, treaty, uh, dealing, you know, with Penobscot land in particular, that it's, um, you know, it's, it's <clears throat> the official policies, right, are, you know, self-generating. They're very obviously, um, you know, rules made <laughs> out of thin air to benefit a certain group of people, um, that that's uh, the connections that, that, that we've made, um, and specifically, not just a group of people, like particular <laughs> families of people and that sort of founding father approach. Um, I, I also want to say that, and I think this is this is true as well, like um, in the face of that, you know, our, um, the, um, the ability of our uh, ancestors to employ certain forms of um, uh, diplomacy, uh, intelligence, critical thinking, engagements also meant, um, you know, in many ways, that's the reason why we're still here. Um, you know, I think it's it's so hard not to focus on the self-serving quality and the actions of these colonizers uh, and their self-interest. Um, one thing that we can see in the historic record uh, in the documentary history, but I think also in, you know, still folks, you know, in an oral history context as well. And so for some families, just the, um, the ability to maintain um, our presence across the landscape um, in, in ways that you know, I don't know. I just remember, like, my dad said, you know, Howard, Howard, and and Ranko and others would take him out. They would do fishing and hunting, you know, in a canoe in the river at night, you know. And he he'd be like, well, I don't know if that was even legal. And I'd be like, well, it really depends on your perspective. If that's a treaty right, then no. But if you're trying to follow the the fishing and game laws of the state of Maine in the 1940s, when this was when he was doing this, then that was clearly illegal. Um, but I mean, I think you know, uh, I mean, I, I guess you know, the purpose to which our ancestors maintained, you know, these relations with our places um, is such a critical frame for us in terms of tribal sovereignty. Uh, it's really not to be underestimated. You know, I think people, people like 
what is tribal sovereignty? And I'll, and I'll say things like, well, you have to, you know, sovereignty is this notion of legal and juridical control and, and Harold referenced that and self-determination employs other forms of, you know, human rights. Um, but I think, you know, the tribal modifier of that, or at least, you know, the Wabanaki, what is Wabanaki sovereignty, um, is in many ways a specific um, set of relations and responsibilities across our landscape, um, which is about control, for sure. Um, but the, the term sovereignty as a sort of European concept, um, and I just want to tell this story, uh, Donna, and I, I feel like I've told this to either or both of you before, but as you, I think you both know, um, um, Jim Sapir was a, was a mentor to me. Uh, we worked at uh, the EPA in Boston together, um, and... Um, you know, he it was he it was a pretty unique thinker about some of these things, but it was also invested in thinking about tribal sovereignty. And I know that there, you know, people love and hate Jim just like any number of people, and he was a complicated uh, person as well. But you know, one of the things that he was able to articulate in a way that, uh, as we were dealing with the lawyers at EPA, as they were trying to wrestle with like why the situation in Maine was so different or what it was that, you know, they should, they owe the tribes in Maine, um, was he talked about this trip that he helped organize and he was very connected to the Catholic church at different times in his life. And he'd organized a trip of Capuchin monks to visit the tribes in Maine. And he came through and they, you know, visited our community. And then they went over and were able to sort of participate in a Passamaquoddy language lesson um over over um i believe in at indian township uh, i think wayne newell was there i think some other folks were there as well and you know they're kind of going around like you know describing the passamaquoddy language to these monks who are all you know to the extent that you can be fluent in something like latin you know we're fluent in latin and these other languages and um you know, I think, you know, folks like Wayne explaining the sort of notions of animacy, you know, in our languages and sort of saying, oh, well, the word for apple is animate, but, you know, and they say, oh, what about this word? And it'd be like, what about the word for rock? You know, some work, some rocks are animate, some aren't, you know, this sort of idea of animacy. And uh, they're like, oh, what about banana? And they're like, oh, banana. Mm. And we have kind of a made up word around banana. It's not animate because it's not sort of in this toolkit. Uh, the thinking of what makes the world sort of animate and have spirit. And at that time, Jim and others were like, you know, the notion of sovereignty is, is, is much like that. You know, it has all these, you know, it's as real as a banana, for sure. Um, but it's also uh, a concept when we think about our relations and responsibilities to place in our own self-determination and the language within which we articulate that um, is, is in many ways this inanimate object, um, the discourse of which is controlled by others. Um, and I think um, this, this deeper thinking that's going on um, all the way through the, the, the 200 plus years that we've been talking about, um, 
within our tribal nations is also something to really recognize and and honor as we um you know try to articulate like where where have we been and where are we going because i think to me the the hopefulness is where we're going is our um the ways in which we start to claim and articulate our notions of what these terms are um as as wabanaki people there you go harold that's it that's a my that's not my drop the mic we're only the 17 yeah, minutes uh, in uh yeah no i um um you mentioned two uh, wonderful people uh, jim sapir and wayne newell who both regretfully have passed into the spirit world uh, i'm saying regretful for us and not necessarily regretful for them uh, because in both cases it was a liberation of a struggle um, to stay with our feet on this earth so to speak um, but one of the important things that Darren just was mentioning um, in his conversation with Wayne about animate and inanimate uh, and relating to sovereignty here is the idea of course that uh, anima uh, which is spirit in Latin, right? The notion of um, anima, like in, uh, in the soul, right? In the spirit. So uh, the idea that the inanimate uh, object or thing does not have spirit, whereas the animate has a spirit, um, that's also embedded in the Latin root of the term. Um, and that's also true for, uh, and I want to use here an example of, um, a traditional uh, means of Wabanaki diplomacy, indigenous diplomacy in the sense of the wampum belts. And the wampum belts are, of course, the indigenous equivalent to the treaty document. And the significance of these wampum belts that have been used for centuries uh, between the Wabanaki nations, but also between the Wabanaki nations and the French, and well as, as well as with the English and as well as with the Dutch, uh, colonial uh, governments. And uh, what's um, fascinating, I um, about maybe 10 years ago or so, I realized um, that the word bead, um, uh, if it is an English trade bead, like glass, in the Wabanaki language, according to the dictionary by Father Raleigh, um, who wrote the Abenaki dictionary at Norwich Walk on the, here on the Upper Kennebec, that the, um, the Wabanaki word, Abenaki word for bead, if it is a trade bead, is inanimate. However, the uh, shell bead, the wampum bead, is animate. And I thought it was fascinating uh, because that is connected to an, um, a, an old legend about a group of Wabanaki shamans who were together at a confederacy meeting and the oldest and highly, highly, uh, most highly respected shaman was speaking. And while he was speaking, and the voice that came out through his lungs, through his, passing through his lungs, through his uh, throat, um, these words were, of course, animated by him. But while he was speaking, wampum beads fell out of his mouth. And the point here is, of course, that these wampum beads um, have had traditional uh, use, of course, for the weaving of the um, the treaty belts uh, and all kind of other 
contractual agreements like marriage uh, marriage ties, for example, but anything that is um, bounded by spirit, and in this particular case, the highest spirit, um, let's use the word God for that, or the great spirit, it doesn't really matter what it is, but it's not just a man or a woman's word, but it's a word that's backed up by the authority of a higher, uh, higher form. And um, when you begin to talk about the uh, back to the issue of sovereignty and the idea of a treaty as a formal contract between two states or two nation states, um, it's fascinating to think about the fact that neither the 1833 quote treaty and quote treaty was no wampum belt, 1820 no wampum belt, 1818 no wampum belt, 1796 no wampum belt. 1794, no wampum belt. So the last wampum belt diplomacy that was used in the interaction with the United States and uh, Massachusetts government happened during the American Revolutionary War. And that's a very important point because um, the dominating colonial power, that the moment the indigenous peoples were reduced to a subaltern status, inferior, um, the acceptance of the uh, treaty relationship in the sense of co-equals in terms of the negotiations was negated and there was no request for a wampum belt nor an offering of the wampum belt. And that's an extraordinary important indicator of how the people like Joseph Orono in 1796, as a very old man who had participated in multiple uh, wampum diplomacy arrangements, uh, ditto, of course, uh, for um, Arson Neptune, the father of Lieutenant Governor Neptune, who is elected to power in 1816. Governor Adian, all of them knew very well among the Penobscot, and ditto is true for the Passamaquoddy, Maliseet, and, and, um, and Mi'kmaq. Uh, they knew very well that the time for the wampum diplomacy in terms of interacting first with the state of Massachusetts until 1820 and then with the state of Maine that that had become an obsolete practice. So coming back to the idea about the past as a prologue, I would find it fascinating to imagine people like Darren um, and other Wabanaki and, Dor and, and, and of course you, um, uh, Donna, is to think about the resuscitation, the resurrection, if you will, of the use of wampum belt diplomacy in the interactions with the state of Maine, as well as perhaps with the federal government, because it has, uh, it um, it puts back into symbolic use uh, and significance the importance of being a co-equal at the table of the negotiations, rather than being a subaltern who is reduced to simply dealing in English language, which is not the Wabanaki language, with English um, inventions, in this case, the, the writing in the alphabet, which is not the English uh, um, invention, but European, um, and before that, of course, Greek, also Europe. Um, but the point is here that um, that the symbolic uh, tokens are much more significant than a token alone. They are indicative of political relationships that get articulation through symbolic form, as, of course, Darren knows very well as a fellow anthropologist. Yeah, no, I... I uh... 
I think that that line of um, reasoning, I, I think is really strong. I think there are many discussions related to that. Um, I think, you know, there are, I'm always of two minds around this, you know, I mean, one of them is the, you know, the system, you know, that has led, has, that has given us, you know, the, uh, and I want to go back to the Tomer uh, v. Merch decision, because I, because I think that sort of, um, uh, <clears throat> in in uh, One Nation Under f Fraud, uh, the authors, uh, Donna is one of them, talk, talk about merch uh, as the bad seed from which would forever grow fruit of the poisonous tree related to our um, uh, treatment by the state of Maine as Wabanaki people. It's, it, it, is, it, it is such a, an odd case because it's a, you know, really just a contract promissory note case. Um, but what what it what it does is that it has this double this double move um, in it that is so important. Um, it allows for again in the in the space within which the state constitution has uh, Indians not taxed as a class of citizen not able to vote. Um, and again, it's not. It's not a racial designation. It's it, it's an Indians not taxed. It's this presumption, and it's from it's found in other places, and it it it, it presumes a kind of separateness of of political uh, uh, citizenship and 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 whatnot. Um, but what merch does is it is it brings Wabanaki people uh, as as the authors of of One Nation Under Fraud mention into this Lockean framework of sort of citizenship and property and 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 all of these sort of um in some ways conveying a rights uh, a set of rights these Lockean rights upon tribal citizens um by sort of saying yeah you can despite despite this language in our constitution and in 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 which you're not actually citizens and we see you as sort of wards of the state, you're able to sign a contract and, you know, unlike other wards, uh, be held <laughs> be held responsible for those contracts. And so potentially that's a positive thing being brought into that. But it what it does is um, by saying at, also at the same time as, a, as an Indian, you are um, an imbecile um, you have an imbecilic nature, um, which, you know, I think most, the modern reader picks up on that, realizes racism is at play, um, which it is, um, but, you know, perhaps doesn't see that the double move is to both bring within a system and keep separate, right? So the bringing in the Lockean sort of ability to participate in these contracts and this sort of thing, um, allows for these other set of actions by the state um, to manipulate the the otherness category um, uh, as well. So I think, you know, I think I in the past have overemphasized that the racism element of it and maybe underemphasized this sort of bringing in to the, into the, the, the Pulakian sort of rights um, elements of it. Um, 
but the double move is important because it it allows for a legitimacy of the state. And this is in direct violation, of course, of federal law, the Non-Intercourse Act, but it allows this sort of state power over, over Native people um, that um, um, was at the time in, in 1842, also a direct violation of what was you know becoming federal Indian law through the Marshall Trilogy, which basically had said uh, states did not have uh, certain kinds of powers over tribes and tribal citizens in tribal territories. Um, this led to, um, you know, Jackson, you know, and others passing the Removal Act, and that was federal, and then they moved the, you know, so I mean, there's this federal uh, control that with Merch, and then basically for the next, uh, from 1842 until 1975, the state had no, um, no checks on its ability to manipulate and control the lives of Indians. Um, the, 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 you know, the, the case that the, the, the state versus Newell case, which is about um, our hunting uh, uh, rights through our treaties, is particularly bad because it's it's cutting off our ability to feed ourselves and maintain our relations uh, with our um, with our places. But it is Merch that, despite it being a simple contracts case, does sort of it does create this unique um, power imbalance through the court system. That the federal authorities only kind of catch up, only catch up with, in the uh, Passamaquoddy v. Morton case, uh, and I think that's why um, it it feels so the 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 weightiness of this history, uh, despite um, um, many fights between 1842 and 1975 for our rights um, and for our right to exist, um, um, but that th that weight just feels so extraordinary because it lasted um, somewhat unabated uh, for that long period, that 130 years. So I wanted to respond to uh, what Harold said about the wampum belts, the wampum belt diplomacy. Uh, you know, and I, I, I'm, I'm not an anthropologist, but I do know that if, if something, if we considered back then uh, the wampum belt to have a spirit, that, that agreement to have a spirit, um, that's on our, that's in our culture. And, and we were, we honored that because that was a, uh, a spiritual belief we were honoring our our ancestors and and respect for our shamans and uh, and truth and and we were coming from that perspective whereas the europeans had no concept of that not not the same as we did when we made a uh, an agreement between tribes we were agreeing with our spirits uh and with this wampum diplomacy uh Europeans, you know, they had no clue about that. All they wanted was the land and all they saw was greed. So for us, I, I, I don't think we can go back to that wampum diplomacy 
in that respect, perhaps we might try to uh, work out a way we can trust each other again. Uh, but I, I think we've got a long ways to go to reach that point. Um, so just just to comment on the on the wampum diplomacy piece. Yeah, the uh, back to the wampum diplomacy indeed uh, quickly. Um... The idea of treaty, right, which um, is a um, component of that um, wampum diplomacy, where you have a treaty between independent states, right? Uh, that's why the moment the tribes become subordinated to the state, uh, the idea of a treaty uh, becomes a problematical term, which is exactly what the United States Congress recognized when it stopped making treaties with American Indian nations, uh, I believe in the 1870s, it stopped the whole process of treaty making. Um, and that was because the United States federal government recognized that um, when they were mopping up the last resistance, pockets of resistance in the Great Plains, um, with the Ogallala Nation, Cheyenne, Apache, uh, that those tribal nations, um, it were continue to be recognized as independent if you will, or chiefdoms, um, that then uh, they would have to be um, annexed. Whereas if you first claim already to possess all that land, it's simply mm -hmm. resistance rather than um, freedom fighting, if you will. And so that whole history that Donna was referring earlier about what she found revealing, I think, in this whole um, series about talking all the way back to G George Washington, that it was about land, uh, but here we see that concept of from a uh, shining sea from sea to shining sea idea, right? That the entire uh, North uh -huh. American continent, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, was divinely ordained to become um, possessed by uh, white Americans, right? Uh, whereby uh, indigenous peoples were expected to to vanish, right? The, the myth of the vanishing Indian, um, and so that whole process. Um, when it unfolded, had its local play out here in Maine. Um, but on the larger canvas, it played out also in the Great Plains, of course, right? Where you see the last uh, armed resistance in the uh, massacre at Wounded Knee, um, where you saw a tremendous um, uh, suffering of, I think, 300 people, uh, men, women, and children, unarmed, were massacred by the cavalry. Um, so that's not that much... I mean, that's well after Merch, right? And that's a half a century after Merch. Uh, so if you begin to think about that, and when you think about people like um, Joseph Nicolaire, who wrote Life and Traditions of the Red Man, right? 1893, um, think about that when he was uh, writing that book, uh, that uh, Chief Sitting Bull had just been murdered, uh, as was Crazy Horse in, out in, in the West. And we... Uh, the anthropological term for that uh, as that notion of coevalness, right? Uh, at the same time, and yet seemingly of such a different eras, we treat what happens in the Great Plains in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, uh, somehow very different than what had happened uh, in Maine in that very same, uh, in those very same two, three decades. And yet they were all interconnected. And people like Joseph Nicolai read those newspapers every day, right? He was a very well informed 
a man who widely traveled uh, to um, to uh, Pennsylvania, to um, to the uh, to the boarding schools, to um, uh, you name it. A, a very sophisticated man who also had his own uh, form, a little bit like what you have, Donna, with this radio show, for example. But he was a contributor to the newspapers, right? With his uh, newspaper pieces, uh, writing about uh, Penobscot history. So. Uh, Anyway, the idea back to the wampum belt uh, and the idea of treaties and the idea of the dispossession of indigenous peoples, what you really have, of course, is a initial coexistence between two neighboring uh, political entities, white colonists and indigenous nations. Then you get the uh, annexation either by military force or the threat of military force. And once these territories were annexed, um, they became subordinated. And that's when you precisely begin to see that uh, that whittling away of uh, indigenous rights, bit by bit, piece by piece, till you have almost nothing left. And that's when you come to the Proctor Report that has also been discussed before, 18, uh, 1942, when you really see an impoverished, uh, pauperized, sick population, high uh, disease, high level of diseases, low life expectancies, and so forth and so forth, a dismal state that, again, uh, still was um, kind of fought for the indigenous peoples to, to vanish, and they didn't. And so that whole um, turnaround uh, probably should be located in the 1950s when the Penobscot tribe declares itself to become a Penobscot nation, right? It was the first use, again, by um, uh, combat veterans of World War II, we've talked about before, who recognized that the dismal state in the at the negotiation table with uh, Maine, that they wanted to have recourse to the United Nations. And they realized that as a tribe, they had no recourse in the United Nations. So they realized we we're going to reclaim uh, the identity label, if you will, of a nation, however small the Penobscot were and are. And so in 1957, I believe that was, that's really the preamble to that then comes to full four in the main Indian land claim settlement, uh, settlement act and, and negotiations before the time end of the 1970s, settled in 1980. Uh, and now we are talking about the next 40 years, because now 42 years ago that the main Indian Land Claim Settlement Act was signed. So for 40 years ago, that's a full generation and a half, almost two generations afterwards, that we're having these discussions. So coming back to the earlier comment about prologue is that the past is the prologue to the present and the future. Um, where exactly do the Wabanaki nations want to be, at, let's say 25 years from now, when um, I will be dead. Donna will still be alive, but very old. <laughs> I'll be haunting everyone. Yeah, and Darren will have gray hair. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'll have hair. That's uh, yeah, great. Fair. Thanks, Harold. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think that's good. You know, I, I'm, I'm reflecting on the, um, yeah, this is my, my, uh, timeline kind of, of of things too just bringing it to you know so much of what happens in the 20th century um 
related and you mentioned the 1950s i think that's a really important moment i think that that those folks um coming back from world war ii um and then folks who fought and came back from the from korea as well my dad fought, fought in korea um that this uh these folks did um heavily influence um the pursuit of of justice that you know i think in in, in to a certain extent happens you know and, and formulated through forms of activism various forms of activism you know things uh you know when you look at what led up to the actual passing quality v martin case you know folks um protesting a, 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 around uh, along route one um and 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 in other cases and then this sort of uh, dialogue, you know, in the 50s that you reference the dialogue between Penobscot, uh, you know, tribe, Penobscot nation, and uh, the United Nations, this sort of um, play to the play to that as well as the um, um, sort of travel to Washington, DC, the, the, you know, an attempt to impact uh, Congress as, as we were, you know, um, people were contemplating trying to terminate us uh, altogether as as Native people. Um, but I think seeing those, that back and forth of, um, it's so interesting because it's, you know, it is, it's, it's, it's very similar to politics today, wherein the state of Maine creates a horrible, horrible, um, situation, you know, uh, controlling, you know, taking lands from us, controlling where we, where and how we can live. Uh, and then, uh, uh, and uh, supposedly all the profits from the lands that they took from us, you know, is meant to support us. But then they twist it into, and again, this is covered very well in, uh, sorry, Donna, another advertisement for, for One Nation Under Fraud. But um, this really structures the politics, you know, right from the 1940s through the through the Settlement Act era, era of um, the state of Maine pretending like they're the victim. Um, they have this obligation somehow <laughs> to the tribes that they are spending whatever amount of dollars. Why aren't these people working? You know, uh, you know, just this like this, all this effort going into impoverishing people, like like institutions, like over many, many years, um, creating conditions of intense poverty um, and then playing victim to the idea that we are now responsible for these people, um, that $48,000 per year, um, this, this is where anger sets in, right? You know, this idea that they have tried so hard to impoverish, take our, you know, like, and then, right through the Settlement Act era, right? That condition of that politics, um, I could make connections even to today, uh, but I think through the Settlement Act era, that notion that in fact, the real victim is the state of Maine um, by having this obligation, um, by sort of having to deal with this problem that they entirely created. Um, and really this, you know, if you look at the the, the, the language that Governor Longley and Governor Brennan use um, in the run-up to the Settlement Act, no nation within a nation, but 
also stoking the fear that Indians are coming for your land, you know, really turning non-Native people against Native people with very deliberate um, rhetoric, um, creating very dangerous situations for many Native people in the state at that time. Um, and then absolutely no responsibility in the Settlement Act, no money put forward. Um, and if anything, they are the biggest beneficiary because it overturns basically everything that most of the things that in the, except for the trust responsibility, it overturns almost the entirety of the legacy of Passamaquoddy v. Morton um, in recognizing our inherent sovereignty as tribal nations in the U United States uh, system of, of federal Indian law uh, sovereignty recognition, which is not any sense of true uh, or absolute sovereignty. But it's just this like, and then the, the you know, our friends in the media sometimes kind of re-representing it and saying like, you know, uh, since the state of Maine gave its $81 million, like they think the state of Maine, because of the way the state of Maine people talk about it, the people in the state of Maine government who are involved in those negotiations talk about it as such an imposition. Um, they think that the state of Maine lost something. Like people who cover this in media and, and who are not well-versed in this. Um, um, and that has led to this notion of, you know, like many other parts of the country though, that somehow we have a, a you know, we're, we're very, we have such special rights and, and uh, you know, our specialness has been so special because they, they you know, without due process, basically take, you know, two thirds of the state of Maine from us. Um, so I think it's just, you know, that, that attitude of, um, and that we're still left with, I think, you know, that, um, uh, and, and I guess it's not so much a role of victim, but I think the people resisting our sovereignty in, in, in the state government now, um, um, I think they see this as like potential um, harm. I think they resist it because they see there are scenarios in their mind within which we have more sovereignty and they somehow miss out on something. Um, not entirely sure what that is. I think it's economic. If I think about, you know, the lobbyists who were involved in sort of helping um, prevent, you know, LD 1626 from becoming law, um, they represented certain interests um, or that um, fear a kind of uh, tribal regulatory infrastructure in our state. But I think it, it, it the, the initial kind of frame of this victimization or the potential to be the victim of a scenario that the state of Maine entirely concocted um, is rooted in that 1940s kind of period, or at least in that sort of 20th century framework of um, now we've got all their land, <laughs> what do we do with them kind of, kind of scenario. Um, and it's a constant bad reminder. And now somehow we're responsible uh, for, for them. Um, it's still this, uh, still structures so much of our engagements. Um, and the river case that we've talked about several times before, I was kind of thinking about the Penobscot term for my hunting territory, but the Penobscot term is Nzeboom, right? Uh, Nzeboom, my river. Uh, so here you see that the English word is my hunting territory, terra is land, right? So 
the notion about that everything is land, that's an agricultural type of mindset of farming the land. But from a fisher, fisherman's perspective, that's a whole different relationship to the natural environment where it's the water that matters because that provides the source of uh, livelihood. And we see in the with the judges in the case of the Penobscot River case um, that was just uh, refused to be heard by the Supreme Court, uh, but went into the Court of Appeals, that it was absolutely astounding to me to see the cultural bias of a bunch of judges who, A, don't know anything about indigenous history, don't know anything about indigenous culture, and don't take the uh, time and energy to try to understand that when you have a language that is land biased, that you may have a ruling just by the embeddedness of the, the language in the, uh, in the law about real estate, you measure it in terms of an acreage, not in terms of how much um, of water is involved. And so the notion of what is an island, an island in, as a land surrounded by water, but what exactly, how much water is that? So you ask any lobsterman or lobster fisherwoman in, uh, on the, uh, on, in the Gulf of Maine, none of these communities can exist without the water. And so had to have truncated the Penobscot Reservation to just the pieces of land sticking out above the water level at a certain time of the year is so stupid that and so inane and so culturally ignorant and so wrong. They start saying, who have appointed these people with their black coats to sit in a ruling to write these treatises that are basically built on other treatises without taking into account the cultural facts uh, that are in the case. And so uh, this example of Nzibum as my territory, but in the Penobscot language means my river, exemplifies that cultural bias that has seeped up, seeped into, uh, into jurisdictions whereby you get rulings that are wrong. There's nothing but one word. It's absolutely wrong and wrong-headed. And I very much hope that uh, well, the Court of Appeals in the majority has ruled against the tribe that the tribe will not uh, give up the fight for its river. Okay, I think, tell us what you really think, Harold. Uh, <laughs> that, that's great. I think we should end on that. Don't you dare? Yeah, for sure. I, love I think it. that's great. So uh, thank you, uh, Harold. I appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> so I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Join us next month for the last uh, show on unpacking sovereignty. Um, I want to thank Professors Harold Prince, uh, Darren Ranko, and pl please tune in again next week uh, for our show. And uh, music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from the CD Dreamwalk. The engineers for our show are Jessica Lockhart of WMPG and John Mann of WERU. Tune in again next month for another Webinaki Windows. <laughs> <laughs>